Hi, my name is Edward Burke, and this is Uncommon. Uncommon and Uncommon Clips are produced by Narel, a unique digital agency. Head to narel.com to learn more. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com. Well, that was very interesting in that book, what they covered uh, during the GFC. They, at, you know, bargain basement prices when mm. they had the money. They bought or a lot of their state-owned properties bought assets in Australia and Brazil. And so that's probably the greatest issue we have now mm. is that we're, we're used to our system where you can't just take those assets. Mm. So how do, you, how do you make them more reliable mm. Like let's say they've put in all these tariffs on Australian mm. products, wine, lobster, et cetera. What do you, if you're in charge of policy when it comes to China, let's say the the prime minister has a <laughs> think tank group yeah. that he's trying to put together, what do you do? Well, I'm not a terribly big fan of tariffs generally because I'm a free market person. But in some cases you do need punitive measures. The first step I would like to think would be to incentivise uh, Australian conglomerates to buy back those assets at above market price. You would think that would be the first step. Buy back as in, uh, and when you say conglomerates, they could be any company. Well, it might be General Reinhardt's company, it might be Twiggy Forest's company, it might okay. be a Melbourne-based real estate firm. It could be anyone yeah. that has the capital they're willing to put up. And I think offering to subsidise their investment by covering the part of the investment that goes above market price, or maybe even a bit more than that, so that they actually end up buying those assets below market price and returning them to Australian ownership. And you may have caveats on that about they can't sell it to someone that's not Australian, they have to keep it for X amount of years, they can't split it up, whatever it might be, mm. I think would be the first way to go. Because I initially like to think the best way to go is by growing Australian companies rather than punishing foreign companies. Mm. You know, I think that's the most positive way to look at it. If that failed, you know, if it, if it did, and then you could start looking at punitive measures for Chinese companies. So you could look at any Chinese company that uh, is part-owned by the Chinese government or has a significant connection to the Chinese government. Which and is pretty much all of them. All of them, exactly. Yeah. You might say, well, they have a 70% tax rate if they own a major Australian asset. Mm. You know? And that is immediately going to force them to sell the asset. Because you know, people say, oh, but that's, you know, that's not very free market of you because that's going to push those companies out. But in this scenario, that's exactly what we're trying to do is push the company away. Yeah. Do you see any potential reactions to Australia? Like that's the one thing I think about is Australian mm. companies in China and the potential impacts on those companies. Like there's obviously going to be collateral damage. I just don't know what to what extent we have or, or Australian private companies have assets in China. I think the bigger question, the more pertinent question, is to what extent do we have a choice? Right. At this point in global geopolitics, I don't think there is much choice between stand up to China or let them do whatever they want. Yeah. You know, there, there is only one option, which is to stand up to the Chinese government. Yeah. If the Chinese Communist Party say, we're going to tariff all Australian goods, right, that's all good and well. Mm. And we sitting here, we think, oh my God, that's going to destroy our businesses. And that's a real concern. More so is raising consumer prices in China. Yeah. And the Chinese middle class is growing and they're becoming more and more financially aware of their consumer prices, their consumer costs and their cost of living in China. The Chinese government has retained a huge amount of their middle class population because the cost to live in China remained relatively low compared to other countries because they combine massive volumes, costs are lower, they then pass it on to the consumer. The more consumer costs start to rise in China, the less livable it becomes. Mm. The more people start to seek to move abroad, 
the less of a taxable middle-class population they have, the less of those businesses are growing and it becomes very, very precarious for the Chinese government. Yeah. You know, if we were here suddenly, imagine you're sitting here and we're all in Melbourne, everything that's great, and you go and buy, go to buy some lamb because it's just recently they've, well, today I think they announced that they're going to start going after the Australian lamb industry. Really? Yeah, the $780 million lamb industry. Wow. Uh, let's say you went to buy a lamb chop tomorrow and that one lamb chop was $25. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be buying that lamb chop. And then imagine you go to get a bottle of wine and that one bottle of wine is $450. Yeah. And it's just a normal bottle of wine. Then you can't buy that wine. You're suddenly not consuming mm. what you would usually be consuming. So the Chinese government and all of the companies in China that they import these things, suddenly no one's consuming them. And suddenly there's no product coming in to be consumed. They can't import. They can't export. Mm. Who's going to buy? It suddenly becomes a massive economic problem within China. Yeah. And if you suddenly woke up tomorrow and everything was 400 times more expensive, you'd start thinking, oh, where else can I move? Where can I go? How can I do this? Because this isn't feasible. The only problem with that is that requires a long-term position by Australia, Mm. which we saw. My frustration here locally was, great example, Kerry Stokes comes out and says, like, why are we doing this? We should be, you know, getting along with the party, et cetera, et cetera. And my concern is it's people like that that have an obvious bias, monetary bias, who push or pressure the government to not be able to make long-term hard decisions? No, that is a, an absolute issue, is is the government not making long-term hard decisions. And as I've said and been quoted before saying, you must stand up to China and they must be consistent. You, as I was saying before, you can't waver on your point. You have to say, this is our position. It doesn't change. This is Australia's position. I think it's fantastic to have China as a trading partner. That's not an issue. Yeah. But it's about free trade and fair trade. We need to get what we get and they get what they get and it has to come to some kind of balance. Yeah. Unless you said to the Chinese government, the Chinese government have never heard no before, ever. Yes. We want this, okay, we want this, okay, we want this, okay, we want this, okay, fine. But you need to start saying, well, no, we'll give you this. Yeah. You need to start, instead of saying to China, you can take this, and say, we will give you this for X, we're not having that. I mean, my issue with the Chinese government as well in their relationship with Australia is about infrastructure. I think a lot of people are concerned. John Holland, which has a beautiful building over there in Melbourne, they've done a great job doing that building out, owned by the Chinese government. Well, even more specifically, really, the Chinese Communist Party, a mm. uh, majority stake. So when we're putting them in charge of building our infrastructure, what message is that sending to China? The message that's sending is, we're going to do this for you. Here, take this. Take our infrastructure. Do this to our infrastructure. We're prioritising you. You know, it sends a message to China that they are our priority in trading. Yeah. What we need to show China is much like them, our priority is our own nation. You know, there is one thing that the Chinese are, and that's intensely nationalistic. Right? So it's very hard for them to argue with nationalism from other countries. And you need to say, we need to say to them, listen, China, your priority is China. That's great. You're the Chinese government. That should be your priority. You shouldn't give a shit about Australia. You're the Chinese government. What's the point? <laughs> But we're the Australian government, so we don't give a shit about you. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I, I can't. I can't see. Well, I th- look, the 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 tide is turning in terms of like mentally where people are at with that. At, at some point, people will get to that. You need the right leader. Yeah, and that's what people liked in Donald Trump, is they felt like Donald Trump was the kind of leader that could sit down with someone and say, "Listen, this is about America. It's not about China. I don't care about China. I care about America. They're my it's my country." And I'm not sure if there is that person in Australia that people could imagine that happening mm. in them saying that. Because Scott Morrison is a very, very diplomatic person. Yeah, he's not going to be the one to. As is Anthony Albanese is even less 
confrontational. Yeah. Now, I think Anthony Albanese would cry if an ice cream van chased him. <laughs> Come on. So I don't, you know, everyone who's on the left is just gonna, you know, they're gonna have a field day with that. I think a lot of them are going to love it because he's not a very much liked on the left. Really? No, I don't mind him. I think he's an extremely reasonable person. Yeah. As far as how he's dealt with COVID. Yeah. I think his cooperation with the federal government has been excellent. Yeah. And they don't, that's what the Labor Party don't like. So who is the person, foreign policy wise, that would be the best for this? It would be the best for it. Yeah. Mm, it's a good question. Because we've got, who's the foreign minister at the moment? Melissa Payne? Mm. Yeah. She was the defence minister till recently. I can't think of a person in the government. I don't think it's one person that would have to do it. I think you would have to elect a government uh, on Whose that platform. That, yeah. On that platform where they had committed to this strategy. And I think it would be worth discussing it with the opposition to create a bipartisan strategy for the next 10 years. Hmm. I think it would be worth having a 10-year plan, 5- to 10-year plan, bipartisan, yeah. on how we're going to deal with the China issue. Do you see, I don't know if there is a committee for it at the moment, but there is a committee in the US uh, for China. So in the US they have a Senate committee, I believe. Mm. Uh, maybe it is a House of Reps committee, I can't remember. Mm. But uh, Marco Rubio seems to be the leader of that committee. Mm -hmm. And they focus, it's like a China watch, essentially, um, keeping the US competitive against China. And he's, mm. been, he's probably been the best to talk about IP theft in the last yep. four years. Is that the way to, to start it? I think you have the issue in Australia that committees end up being extremely politicised. Mm. And I don't think that dealing with China should be a political issue, really. Mm. I think it should be a bipartisan issue. Yeah. Because it's about Australia's future and Australia's sovereignty and Australia's security. For a long time, you know, military issues and intelligence issues have been a bipartisan issue. Mm. And I think as much as I might joke about um, Anthony Albanese, and it's just yeah, I do joke about him, but uh, he does seem like someone that you could come to that arrangement with. Yeah. Well, to be honest with you, I... I I listened to Penny Wong's um, statement in the Senate mm. after that image came out. I actually really like the way that she's so stern when it comes to some like foreign mm. policy issues. I've, I've, there, is, there are some issues that just should be bipartisan. Yeah. They just should be. Yeah. And one of them should be that we protect Australia's sovereignty and security at all costs against the Chinese Communist Party. Mm. That should be number one, two, and three. And, uh, you know, as I think Anthony Albanese has come out previously and hasn't been too positive about the BRI deal in Victoria, as has the Prime Minister. Well, that's, have a lot of that's it's sort of a fait accompli that's going to be thrown up. Absolutely, and it should be. Yeah. And there are some issues that should be. Bill Shorten would have been someone you could never, ever make a bipartisan arrangement with. I don't think he would have had it. You don't think so? I don't think so. I don't think so. He, yeah. was, a, he was a political animal in a way that Anthony Albanese isn't. You know, Bill Shorten wanted to win at all costs, and I don't think he would have sat down and said, oh, let's come to a happy agreement with the Morrison government to make them look good. Mm. I don't think he would have. Whereas I think Anthony Albanese, as much as he may not be a confrontational man, is probably someone that you could have that discussion with. I, I can't think of many examples where he's been particularly aggressively against any policies the government's put up to do with COVID. No. And make no mistake, this is a crisis of COVID magnitude. Mm. The crisis of the Chinese Communist Party's influence. Yes, it is, is the CCP virus, yeah. in essence, that escapes China because they were incompetent at managing it, essentially, mm. just like with SARS. Um, it's funny, again, that book mentions SARS and how that was an existential moment for the CCP 
in China because that really kicked up a fuss、um, amongst the population.